Hello and welcome to Chatty AF, the anime feminist podcast. My name is Vrai Kaiser. I am the managing content editor and daily operations manager at uh, NFM. You can find me on various social medias at Ryder Vrai, uh, Blue Sky, Mastodon, the main instance. Uh, it's technically still on Twitter, but I don't really use it. And back with me again today are Megan and Maddie, if y'all want to introduce yourselves. Hello. Uh, once again, uh, I'm Megan. Uh, she, her, for pronouns, a uh, long-time manga reviewer, slightly less longer Gundam fan, and happy to be back. Hi, my name is Maddie. My pronouns are they, them. I am a very long-time Gundam fan. I mostly use Twitter and Blue Sky, definitely leaning towards Blue Sky these days, and you can find me at Hyakushiki0087 on either site. I'm happy to be here. Thank you both for joining me again. Folks at home, in case you are jumping in on this one, we have already discussed the first half of The Witch from Mercury in a separate podcast because I, a fool, thought that this would be a 50-episode series uh, (laughs) rather than a 24-episode series. And uh, so you will find our discussion of the first half there. And as you come into this one, you, uh, we will be discussing the entire back half, uh, and this will be a spoiler cast. So if you've not reached the end of the series, uh, this is your heads up. Everybody on the pod and at home, go ahead and raise your hand if uh, you had Witch from Mercury does a Samurai Flamenco on your 2023 bingo card, because I didn't. I did not either. I mean, <laughs> I, I didn't because I haven't seen Samurai Flamenco. <gasps> I'm sorry. <laughs> Go home. Go home and do that now. I, I haven't watched it since it aired, so I mean, I'm effectively like I need to rewatch it, but that pile is big. That pile of things I need to rewatch is scary large. Well, the reason I bring it up is that Sam Flam is like the example from the last decade of extremely gay shows where the uh production staff said some shit in magazines that completely contradicted the obvious stuff in the material. Yeah. I'm not surprised, at least for Witch from Mercury specifically, because Bamco's gotta cater to whatever audience it deems largest, which is, I guess, very conservative, older salarymen who build Gunpla, and that's it. Like, that's, that's the main audience, in quotes. I guess. Yeah, I um so I wanted to address this up top because I feel like it's fresh on the minds of anyone who is listening to this podcast right after it comes out. For folks who maybe aren't tapped into the uh, anime newsosphere, bless you, you're a happier person and I'm about to ruin that. Sorry. <laughs> Uh, after so after the extremely gay canonically gay uh gay married lesbian ending of which for mercury there was an interview in I have to pull up the name of the magazine because a Gundam I, Ace I, magazine yes in Gundam Ace magazine uh where basically there is a question to do with uh Saleta and Mirine's marriage uh and there between the airing of the print interview and the online version of the article going up the phrasing of marriage was removed from the article 
And uh, several days later, uh, the official Bandai account put up a statement that this was something that had been missed in editing. It was a gosh darn slip up. And what they wanted was to leave uh, Saleta and Mirina's relationship where they both wear wedding rings and Eri refers to uh, Mirina as her sister-in-law up to audience interpretation. That was their literal words. Open to interpretation. Uh, the, sh- the ship posting was incredible, by the way. Oh, yep. yes. yeah. I-, I would like it known for the record that Bandai has been doing this for the past uh, decade, at least, as a Tiger and Bunny fan. Pepperidge, uh, the-, the video might be gone because it was hosted on Blip, and that uh, video hosting service hasn't existed for half a decade now. But uh, back in 2011, the... Uh, Tiger and Bunny producer Ozaki went to New York Comic Con and told, uh, and at the panel told the fan base that that show had been uh, structured from the ground up so that Kotetsu and Barnaby's relationship was uh, equally readable, basically, as platonic or romantic. And because it was 2011, we queers sort of licked the dust and sort of tasted the homeopathic. most on our tongues as representation we were all really jazzed about this uh but now it's 2023 and uh get good bandai yeah it's it's one thing when they say that about tiger and bunny but tiger and bunny didn't end with you know barbie and kotetsu sitting on a hillside admiring their wedding rings while kotetsu's daughter calls barnaby dad it did in my heart this is the level of erasure we're, we're dealing with. And yes, I do appreciate that Gundam fans reacted as they often do with memes because all of them rightfully called it out as BS. But also the whole thing, I'm sure gave you uh, as well, Vry, flashbacks to the uh, the Netflix Evangelion dub and the whole controversy around worthy of my grace. Oh yeah, listen, I've got a laundry list of uh, of examples of this kind of bullshit. As I mentioned, Samurai Flamenco ends in a marriage proposal from one lead to the other. Uh, and then at one point, a member of the creative team did a uh, magazine article where he just uh, uh, basically said, oh no, M- Masayoshi's just an idiot. He didn't know what he was saying. And I'm like, uh, listen, this child's not that stupid. There's fool nonsense and then there's fool nonsense. <laughs> Like, this is no homo levels like we've never seen before. Like, and it just keeps continuing. Like, come on. It is, as we were saying, the year 2023. You can do better. Get over it. (laughs) No homo levels like I haven't seen since after uh, Kill la Kill came out. And one of the artists just spent the solid next year posting Ryu Mako art on his Twitter. (laughs) Like a hero. Wasn't that Sushio? Or who was it? Yeah, Uh it was him. Which, bless you, sir, for posting these lesbians. I support you. <laughs> but yeah, whether they're doing it just to cater to older, more conservative fans, there's been some speculation that this may be done for the Chinese market. Either way, whatever the reasoning, it's real dumb. Nobody buys it. These girls are gay. Good for them. The po- I gotta. F- I feel so bad for Chinese anime fans, especially queer Chinese fans who are like at this point. It's not untrue, you know. It's not untrue. I'm sure, but the Chinese market has definitely become the boogeyman to to paper over bigotry in home markets where they say, "Oh no, we had to do it because of China." Yeah, that's the ticket. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Government regulations, and they were airing it on Billy Billy for free, like with ads. Like it was getting aired over there, so. I'm 
I'm not going to assume, but due to Chinese law, not the people or the culture, it's not out of the question. There was a crackdown uh, recently, from what I understand, on a lot of, uh, in relationship to uh, dramas and um, and like, like Don May adaptations recently, because I believe uh, in response to Word of Honor, uh, that drama, which means stuff like uh, the heavenly officials blessing drama which is completely filmed and now just sitting in a can somewhere but this is neither here nor there uh the point is production staff i feel so bad for the production staff of which from mercury because it sounds like from start to finish i mean this is something we sadly have to assume most times but it really sounds like things were rough for the witch from mercury production yeah i mean Admittedly, that's true for pretty much any big anime production these days. But, you know, as people rightfully pointed out, there were 90 key animators credited on that finale. That is a lot. That's more than a lot of anime films have. Like, they were pulling people off of the the most recent Hathaway movie, which is still in production. Yeah, that, and that's, you know, for, for folks at home who maybe don't follow uh, animation terminologies closely, That's that's not animators, period. That's... What, what you might call main animators, not the people who are also doing like in between work to smooth um, scenes together, like the people who are doing main cuts, key animators, 90 of them. 94, actually, from what I did reading a little bit earlier. That's a lot. Remember when anime used to have like 5, 10, maybe 15, 90? Oh, gosh. And the fact that they're pulling, even from past episodes, not even just this finale, they're pulling people effectively like out of retirement. Like, the amount that, like, well, he's not technically retired, but he's getting older. Like, the, um, the amount that Obari contributed is a lot. I'm glad yeah. he's doing more work, but the fact that the amount of people still able to do 2D mechanical animation is, like, getting narrower and narrower is quite scary. There's there's certainly been a, a an issue in anime production where, uh, you know, because workers are so crunched, veterans aren't able to uh, to pass on what they know. And there is simply no time for industry newbies to receive the kind of training and mentorship that they deserve. So it doesn't surprise me that that there is this gap widening gap in something as specialized as mechanical animation. And sadly, this is nothing new for the Gundam franchise as a whole. I mean, going all the way back to the original in 1979, there has always been some degree of backstage chaos, whether because shows had bad ratings, whether they were getting canceled, whether uh, directors left or died partway through production, uh, whether they were fighting with Sunrise or the leadership at Bondi. I mean, it's, it's really hard to think of a TV-level... Uh, Gundam that didn't have some problem like this to some degree. I, I think I remember one of my first sort of brushes with uh, awareness of like backstage chaos was like as a teenager uh, watching the the DVD extras for Gundam Double O where they would do the little omake uh, videos with like Alleluia crying in the corner over DVD sales. <laughs> yeah and of course double zero is famous for being the first one where it's like they had an idea for the first season and they wrapped it up and then they started the second season and they didn't have a quite a clear plan what to do and you know thankfully that didn't happen with g witch but you know as we mentioned uh, there, there are other issues i feel like my the issue with g witch is like my cosmic punishment for constantly saying that uh double o was a really good 25 episode anime <laughs> <laughs> 
Mm. Look into the details. Uh, I feel like Gwitch. It was a pretty good twenty-four episode show. It would have been a fantastic, like thirty-six or thirty-nine episode. Gundam. That's what I was thinking, or at least like thirty flat. Like there were a few things with the end that could have been less squished, but I think thirty-six to thirty-nine was ultimately what I was hoping for. I was ultimately hoping for a callback to Utena with the episode count, but we didn't get that. Uh, yeah, I um. It, it's watching the second half of G-Witch sort of, we're about to dive into just complete baseless speculation because there's not a lot, there is not as yet a lot of information about what the production staff was told outside of, you know, sort of the, the limited hints we've gotten from Animation Crush. But it reminds me of like uh, when OKKO OK was canceled and they, um, they like, strung together all of their plot related episodes at the end and you know they got through it all they checked off all the main ones but there was this notable lack of breathing room to kind of build up tension uh between them and it also reminds me of uh when stars align bless its heart akane still trying to get the other half made uh was told you know two years into production that their episode count had been halved and he was given the choice to either try to cut down what they had planned out narratively or just air the the unfinished first half as it was and of course Akane being a brave motherfucker went with the latter half it feels to me like G-Witch got an order that it was being cut and tried to condense what it had done yeah I had a feeling it was running up against like whatever shows are still in, in the docket over at sunrise. And it's just like, we can't go any further than this. This is your hard stop. Speaking of Utena, the Utena references did continue throughout season two, which made me very happy. Yeah. I, I feel like we've, we've, we front loaded a lot of production. woe stuff. I fucking love witch from Mercury. I think it is an amazing anime considering all that it's struggling against. It, it was a weekly highlight of just, feeling a real sense of community with other anime viewers that you don't get too often with shows that aren't yet another fucking shonen jump battle shonen that I'm not watching. And mm -hmm. I really enjoyed <laughs> that experience. Yeah, it, it is. a It was so a lot of Sundays were a communal experience that we haven't had since the likes of Yuri on ice. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like I haven't like bothered to get up at seven in the morning to watch an anime as it effectively drops no i was not going to get up at five in the morning in my time zone to watch that no way i got up at around like 7 30 to 9 30 to watch it and it was great it was i mean like anime church is how you could put it since it was in a on a sunday morning in the united states plus it's yeah. a really a testament to the power of weekly viewing and how good that still is and how some companies could learn from that <coughs> netflix <coughs> Yeah, yeah. I think I will be interested to see how people receive G-Witch now that it is finished, uh, because especially because the second half in the uh, in the NFM Slack, D sort of uh, compared it to uh, Vision of Escaflone, where it's just everything happens so much. Really, there is no time to breathe in the second half. And I wonder what trying to watch that back to back to back is like. Yeah, that I wonder. I'm going to have to give it a rewatch when I do. And I wonder if it's going to hold up to Escaflone, in my opinion, because IMO, Escaflone, despite everything happening so much in the second half, I think Escaflone is perfect. 
Escaflown is wonderful. It is all emotions, lots of big stupid plot. As somebody who's watched <laughs> it in the perfect. last couple that's years. That's why it's perfect. Uh-huh. Well, that's it's not perfect despite those things. It's perfect because of those things, in my opinion. And like, G Witch has so much ambition and I've said this before on other podcasts. I will always, always prefer a show that swings big and ends up kind of messy. You know, something like uh, Fairy Ron Maru was a was a recent one. More people should watch that show than a, a show that is well executed but kind of boring and by the numbers. So I, I really respect what the G-Witch uh, crew went to do here. Utina references and all. Like, I don't think it really needed at least that other 12 episodes to be uh, to really get all of its ideas out of the way. But I don't know. It's good. But yeah, I, I still remember losing my mind, like in the middle of that one episode where Cecilia sets up basically her own Black Rose elevator confessional with Aharo, and they emulated almost right down to the camera angles. I I, I was literally like the, the Leonardo DiCaprio pointing me, like, oh my god! There, uh-huh. was no way, there was no way that wasn't delivered. The camera angles were like the same with how they kind of shot at the walls. And how, like, fran- more and more frantic uh, Marco started looking. Marco or Marcus, I forget his name. Um, Marco. Marco, so I was correct. But yeah, um, how frantic and more frantic, and then how all of a sudden it just basically all stops. Mm-hmm. And Haro's yeah. a cop, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, there's also a lot of it actually at the end. I'm, I'm really, I was not the one who made this observation. I wish I, wish I could remember which uh, Twitter poster did, pointing out that Quiet Zero is itself basically coffin-shaped, and you could regard it as basically the coffin in which Aerie and Prospera are confined themselves, because coffins are like big imagery in Utena for reasons that are too complicated to explain here. Or uh, the fact that Guel and Suleta literally have a sword duel, and Suleta uses one of Utena's finishing moves. It's so much... I, I love that end to their subplots. Like, from beginning to end, uh, Gwell truly is Sionji speedrun. Yes! He also mm. made some slightly healthier choices by the end. Thank you, Okochi, for the food. In hindsight, it, it is a little weird that he has, like, multiple episodes just focusing on him when so much of the cast gets kind of put in time out. I think those episodes are very moving, but it, it does, when you're looking at it as, oh no, we have 24 episodes and not, ah, yes, this is uh, part two of what will be our three to four part series, it, 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 it's an odd shaped detour. I have a feeling that they got the call for the, if the episode, like, chop did happen, they probably got the cut midway through the second season, or, or, the the one, okay, let me talk about Okochi's writing real quick. The main reason I absolutely despise Code Geass is that it, it's just, I mean, first of all, I just don't like its writing. Sorry for people who like Code Geass, but, um... Okochi tends to introduce so many ideas all at once, and sometimes he doesn't do anything with half of them. He's done better here, but all this focus on Gwell and kind of pushing away everybody else and some other subplots, that's a good example of how his writing can tend to be and why I sometimes have a distaste for it. He's gotten a lot better as time's gone on since Code Geass, but tidbits of that habit is still there 
Yeah, like the the whole side episode where Gwell encounters like the Earth terrorist group. It was a really good episode on its own and a really important one for Gwell's like emotional development. But they also never really returned to that group ever again. Or late in the series when his younger brother Landa basically has a heel turn for no good reason other than losing his mind. Or the fact they basically shot uh, Elon 5, Maria, and Nakia in a room for like half the season. They're in the time out room because if you let them out, they might be too effective on the plot. I mean, admittedly, you know, Elon 5 was just having the time of his life just poking at Noria until she lost it while Nika's just there on the sidelines. But yeah, it turns out when you let him out, he's just like, nah, F, F this shit. I, you know, I'm not getting in a Gundam again. I'm fixing this. Yeah, there's a lot. Elon and uh, Noria's subplot is one of the many things in part two where I get that feeling I mentioned before of like, oh, I see why this works, but it needed time to breathe. Like the, the sense that that these two are drawn to each other because they feel like they're disposable and they decide, you know, fuck everybody. We're going to go off and see the world. But then, ah, nah, she dies and that's sad. So he's going to go off without her. Like all of those are beats that I buy, but it just runs through it so quickly that there's really no time for it to hit. And there's other little details uh, with him that I don't think were ever really explored. Like, uh, there co- there's a couple of times when he was in the Fract, and I can't remember if this was in this season or season one as well, where it's like he's doing like ballet foot positions. Like, at one point he's attacking where the, the robot is clearly on point. Like, they're clearly hinting that whoever Elon 5 was before he got face swapped was a dancer, but they never really do anything with that. And then OG Elon uh, is. In the finale, just like that sucks. <laughs> actually, I'm gonna hit the bricks. Yeah, <laughs> amazing. You so that, good. That was that was amazing. I was not a character, and now I'm piecing out. Bye. <laughs> By the way, the um the on point stuff. I think it did happen in season one, but it happened again in season two, way more clearly. Because I know with the first season, like it was displaying more of like the foot guns that were going on, because the Act has guns on its feet. But it was definitely way more clear that um, Elon 5 was on point with um, in season two. But they didn't do any other ballet positions. That would have been cool. But oh, well. Yeah. I know. And, and poor Earth House. Like, Choo Choo gets her arc in the <sighs> first half. But everybody else just had to sit on the sidelines, which is sad because I think they're all charming and I love them. I mean, they were all good characters and they're all there to support Suleta when she needed it because oh boy did she need it this season but it's like I kept waiting for through the whole season like come on Chuchu's gonna have a big moment again you know she's gonna go out into space and she's gonna punch somebody in a Gundam or she's gonna snipe them again and it never really happened and I was kind of sad I this is me this is me thinking that Okochi again introduced I don't I don't want to say too many characters but too many ideas again to just not go back to them because from my perspective, this is a habit that he has, and it kept showing itself. And the thing is, I felt like initially when I finished it, that he did it way less. And then going back to it for this podcast, while he still did it less, it wasn't like as less as I initially thought upon finishing. The The afterglow of the series ending has worn off on me. And while I still think G-Witch is great, I am definitely seeing a lot more flaws with another uh, look over, I would say. I, th- I think of the subplots that got cut down, uh, Shadik's is 
kind of the most the oh, one yeah. that that that's like the one that suffers and therefore the series as a whole suffers the most like I, exactly well neat like if there the finale clearly puts so much emphasis on this relationship between them and Shadik is such an important character in terms of how his relationship with his father figure uh mirrors both Miorine and Saleta and at the end you know you he has this his his scenes at the end are clearly where they wanted him to land but there's just this big old hole in the second half between him pulling off his coup and uh deciding that he's going to to take the fall for all of this and thematically the show kind of suffers for putting him on the sidelines yeah, it felt like there was there's more they were trying to develop between like him and Miarine. Like he's got like this weird almost purity idea behind her. Like he doesn't want her to be involved in like the politics or the business or anything like that to basically keep her hands clean. But again, they, they never quite went anywhere with that until he's like, I'll just take out responsibility for all of it. I'll go to jail. Okay. I feel like he's definitely more of like he's not exactly one to one like how Guel is with Sionji, but he's definitely more of like a toga type. I would yes. say for sure. And however, like with them putting him on the sidelines, they also effectively put that entire development on hold. And I feel like it never really, even though they reintroduce him later with the eventual like where they were going to put him anyway, the fact that they just kind of sidelined him and effectively you know, since he kind of represents what, you know, Dawn of the Fold and what a lot of Earthians want as they are, you know, an oppressed group in this particular Gundam series, unlike many others, um, they kind of put that whole, like, oh, what about the Earthians and how, and what they are doing and how they are going to be affected by all of this was also put on hold. And so it's a mess. I will give them kudos that I got the, I did get the shape of, Shadik's relationship with Mirine being like, I want you to be all the things that I can't be, both because I care about you and because you have this inborn privilege that I don't have as an Earthian and uh, boy, sure, I sure wish somebody would uh, pitch us an essay about the racial implications of Jewitch uh, and Shadik and Zaleta, uh, neither here nor there. But I, I think also uh, Shadik's subplot is a little bit a victim of the fact that this show wants so badly not to be pat and like condescending about the earthian struggle and you know uh come down on and then peace talks solved uh you know terrorism and uh guerrilla tactic uh resistance and you know we all just needed to learn to converse with each other through new types and i really respect the show for not wanting to do that because I think a lot of well-meaning anime about um, about resistance fighters ends up coming down there. Uh, but so because they wanted to leave that subplot on the kind of hopeful but ambiguous, not we don't have an answer for everything ending, uh, like with the green room characters, we couldn't have too much time for Shadik. Otherwise, there wouldn't be enough time um, to get all the way through all the nuance that we wanted to develop. Um, so it was better just to kind of touch on the, the base points, uh, if that makes sense. Well, that makes perfect sense. I mean, they basically spend that one episode where Miarine goes to Earth to underline just that. She goes down thinking, I can fix everything with peace talks. And then it all blows up in her face, mostly because Prospera blows up lots of things. 
lots of things. Poor Miriana, she's trying so hard. And like that doesn't it this I both I I I really respect how the show wants to be about how the sins of previous generations shouldn't necessarily be the fault of the next generation, but the next generation still has to clean up the mess, as it were. Um, I, I am a little bit frustrated with where they ended up on the whole late stage space capitalism thing. And I think I see what they were going for ultimately, right? Because like the um, issue of peace talks and resistance and um, the fact that all of this is just a, a, a mess of uh, imperialism and colonialism, it wants to go towards we're working together to try and fix this, but I couldn't all the way through the first half. I could see these threads building of, ah, well this in this 39 to 50 episode series, obviously episode 24 will end with um, Mia Rene becoming president of the Benerit group and being like, and now that I'm in a position of authority, I can fix it. And then, you know, the second half, you dismantle that with, oh, no, I cannot fix from within the system. The only thing to do is to dismantle or reject the system. But the show didn't have time to get to that step. I just said once again, Okochi introducing many cool ideas and either not having enough time to do anything with them, not um, doing anything with them at all, being restrained by something or other like a large corporation. I mean, it still touches upon those ideas, at least that like neoliberalism isn't going to you know, solve corporatocracy. Um, but it could have been a lot more. And I think it needed more time to, you know, more runtime and more time to breathe in general. And had it gone in that direction, it would have been actually been a really interesting commentary on the whole kind of princess of peace uh, character type that the Gundam franchise has been developing basically since Wing and like Relena. And you see those sorts of characters pop up over and over again, you know, Locus Klein and Seed, uh, Kudelia in IBO. Um, oh, what's the one in Double Zero? Vry, you would know. Marina. Marina. And you basically, you know, saying... You know, you can't just solve it all with a pretty girl saying, but what if we did peace instead? But yeah, I, I was okay with it for the most part, because I, I, I like that the writers acknowledged, okay, we do not have the solution to late stage space capitalism. Nobody has that. So, But, you know, what we're going to do is we're going to at least try to dismantle this horrible quasi-corporate government system that our parents established and try to make things right from there. It's not a perfect solution, but it's a good step. It's that sub Miriam's subplot in particular feels a little like um, Okuchi running up against, oh no, Utena was a metaphor. So when Utena said you can't revolutionize the system or other people, you can only revolutionize yourself. It didn't have to deal with the real world fallout of that because it's all a metaphor. Oh no. Yeah, like, I really wish they did more again. Um, I remember somebody <laughs> accidentally compared, I think it was an accident or a joke, where they accidentally compared Mia Rene, especially when she got in her little politician outfit, to a much more well-meaning Hillary Clinton, which I thought was hysterical. Oh. Um, <laughs> I mean, it was very <laughs> power suit-esque. Oh, I know. And the thing is, it's just like, yeah, neoliberalism isn't going to solve everything. But the fact that they kind of went so hard in in those very first episodes with like, you know, space capitalism kills, and then they kind of reel it back a little bit. I was like, hey, 
I mean, I get why you probably had to do that, but why did you do that? You know, that's how I felt. Like I was a bit more forgiving of it because I understand like the constraints and who knows what happened and possibly a coach who's bad writing habits again. I will keep mentioning that till kingdom come. But um, <laughs> yeah, I get it. But I'm also like, why? Yeah. It's, it's, it's like the plot thread where I'm like, I'm ultimately okay with where they landed, but I wish they'd, I see why, fo- why it's a sticking point of frustration for folks, you know? Yeah. Because it, it was, it was sort of set up as the major thematic conflict. Uh, was this idea about corporatocracy and uh, the uh, why am I not why is my brain coming up with absconding that's nothing uh, the the, uh, the taking over of uh, medical assistive technology for military purposes uh, which does and doesn't come back around I feel like uh, the reason we haven't got uh, you know we haven't talked about Soleta um, and Eri and Prospera all that much up to now. I think that's partly because they are the story that got to be what it was meant to be. Yeah, plus a lot of it was kind of on the back burner for much of the first half of season two as Soleta was in, in kind of a bad place after, you know, finding out her backstory that she is literally a clone and she was basically just the only backup that survived and mom and Ari both reject her and she has to deal with that for a bit it's a lot i god prospera is such a good villain we deserve more prosperas i love her i support women's wrongs i was about to say thank you Uh in this in this (laughs) podcast we support women's wrongs women's war crimes except for not so much the child abuse i guess but like uh you know she's uh we don't get to see very many like really complex layered women's antagonists who you know are well developed who uh, have a lot of layers who aren't sexualized uh, or fan servicey and it's interesting in that when you break it down really to its core elements uh prospera's motivated by the fact that she that by both her status as mother and wife. And yet it doesn't feel, the story doesn't feel reductive around her, right? And I would need more time to think with my brain meets about what it is about the execution that really makes her feel like a fuller character than, than, you know, a lot of female antagonists who are like, and I was set and now I am sad and broken because I failed as a mother. Yeah, it's, it's not even about her so much failing, I guess. I guess the way I would put it is more like, how do I put it? Um, like, it, it's the backbone of her grief, but her grief is what drives her and not her failure. Mm-hmm. Right. That's what keeps her from just becoming a Lady Gendo. Very true. That's a great, yeah, because people compared her to him at the beginning of the series. I mean, it's hard not to you know, bad parent that with a, with a mask or sunglasses or whatever that obscures their face that's in a, you know, a leadership position. Kind of hard not to draw that conclusion or to not draw that um, comparison, I would say. But then she very much becomes her own thing and nothing is inherently misogynistic about where she came from and what she became. Like, everything is just is. And it's great. She feels like her own person that she's not like, she is weighed down by her grief and like 
her lost husband and effectively her lost daughter lost in the data storm. But like, how do I put it? Her grief is what drives her rather than anything reductive, let's say. Right. Maybe and... You know, maybe it's, I think what we talk about a lot here on Anifem is because there are so many women in the cast who are well-written and varied, you can do these tropes without it being reducing the character to, this is what women are like. Because, like, you've got, I think one of the critiques you can levy at uh, G-Witch is that um, the women of the Benaret group are a little bit, like, villainous women look scary. Uh, but overall, there's a like there's a lot of all sorts of shades of of antagonistic versus heroic versus self centered uh, women with a lot of different drives, whether those are career or family or uh, uh, sci- yeah power. Uh, that even though these are tropes that are often associated with kind of stereotypical depictions of women, it becomes just a part of her character. And I think that's cool to see. I mean, on to really great, you know, villainous women, even though these women are not the main villains. Other women who do I think who I think are written pretty well are the three ladies that run uh, Pale. You know, they are out for power and out for complete control. And it kind of sneaks up on, you know, the viewers and the cast both. And they are just evil through and through. And they don't need a motivation other than greed and power and desire. Mm-hmm. And for me, I think... Pale, that's, that's what I was thinking of. Uh, but but uh, with the, like, these are the women who are irredeemably evil. And also they're bald and not drawn cutely <laughs> compared to every other woman in the cast. I they, they, I mean, I understand they were older and I believe they were around like already in those leadership positions when the um, when the Vanadis incident happened. Maddie, you wanted to, to talk a little bit more about uh, the sort of disability elements of the plot, which kind of started out uh, like some of the other stuff in G, which started out really strong and then kind of got shelved uh, for a lot of the second half. I wanted so much more with that. As a disabled person, I was so excited. I was like, oh my gosh, we're going to cover disability more so, whether it's physical or anything else. And especially as the show kept, you know, talking about the company they were making and like, oh, how can Gundarm technology be good and all this sort of stuff. And then, like, it never was really explained why specifically what they were doing was bad. It was just kind of shelved. And I felt like we had a really good running start. And then, you know, things started to pace themselves and that's fine. And then it just kind of fell off. I was looking forward to having so much more like, and we got some like, sure, with um, some people's prosthetics later. And, you know, as people were healing from, you know, data storm infection, I believe is what they called it. I think that had to do with it. But the fact that it was just kind of like off in the corner, we could have done better. We could have done much better. It's like, uh, so they decided to revive the gun format, and this time we're going to do it in a way that was it was originally intended and not allow it to be co-opted for war machines. And then they did. And that was the end of that subplot. <laughs> and, like, it's really cool to in, in the finale flash forward to see all these assistive devices normalized and around with so many characters. It, it reminded me... Um, of how well Azakin, uh, keep your hands off Azakin, 
really normalized like diversity and accessibility in its setting without commentary on it. But yeah, it was it was kind of like you reach the end of season one where they put out their uh, promo video for how they've sort of achieved this prosthetic technology. And you're like, I can't wait to see what complications there are with this. And then there aren't any. Yeah, it's not even explained as to like even just putting it in the ground of this is why we really can't do that, but we're still going to try anyway. And it's different if it's introduced at the start as something that's normal and never touched upon later because it doesn't need to be like in the case of Azekin, but it's introduced as a key point of development, not just for Soled and Miorine, but the entire Earth house and like how they bond together. And then it's just kind of put away. And I was like, hey, that sucked. Can we have more of that? And we never got more of that. I mean, it's better it's, than none, but yeah, they they could have done more with it. That's mm. where I also just insert my, hey, Akochi, you introduced a great idea and you ran with it for a little bit. You could have made that into at least a at least a kind of conclusive like subplot, like something more tied together instead of it felt snapped off early, like you're snapping off a green branch off a tree. Kind of felt that way. It, it it struck me as like it hit a resting point at the end of season one and maybe as they were pruning they looked at it like we can open this back up and sort of half develop it in the second half or we can kind of leave it off where it was and that was the choice that they went with which while disappointing I think I prefer to it being half developed and unresolved but I don't know I, it's it's sort of interesting like you mentioned the uh, the stuff with data storm um the data storm poisoning, which I feel like is where they wanted to go with the complications of assistive technology in the second half. And then just, uh, we've only introduced this at the very end because yeah, Arius, uh-huh. uh, because Eric is a new type because it's not a Gundam without new types. I know this much. I mean, yeah, kind of. <laughs> I mean, she's, she's basically a magical data fairy at this point. I mean, she literally dissolved all the opposing suits and Quiet Zero and everything. And admittedly, that was really kick-ass. But, but also, I'm kind of okay with it, which is surprising for me. Because generally, I do not really take with a lot of the franchise's new type BS. Because a lot of it just tends to get in the weeds. Very high-minded, but doesn't really go anywhere. I felt like this one worked at least. I I am okay with the, well, how it initially started with the Tomino bullshittery because it was kind of pulled out of his ass and how it's just, even though this is not Tomino's work, it's evolved from it. Um, I'm okay with it and I felt like it was fine, but it also, it kind of felt like it was all kind of uh, cobbled together. That's what I was thinking of, but it was still all right. It was all right. Aerie did become kind of a magic wand, just like, I'm going to fix all this. And now I live in a cute little keychain. Which, the number of jokes I have seen, just just like t- tasteless but very funny jokes about uh, being keychain Aerie is suffering, uh, you know, being forgotten in a room while her sister <laughs> makes out with her wife. <laughs> oh, the, the jokes go from tasteless to raunchy, and I, I love it. It's so, it's heinous. And I'm like, that that made me laugh. Please give me more of that. <laughs> I do wonder if part of the reason and part of what I think is really smart about the decisions um, that G-Witch made in regards to the franchise lore is, you know, we talked a lot about the, the Utena uh, nods, but it's also got a lot of literary references to the Tempest, obviously. And because it exists in that 
Ari as Magic Wand for me works in the area of this is kind of working on an emotional level and you have set up the stakes this way. Like nominally we're doing sci-fi with uh, the the perspective technology and weapons of war and, um, you know, medical technology, but uh, this is soft sci-fi. This is social sci-fi. And so Ari using the power of uh, nanomachines, basically Hideo Kojima style to dissolve <laughs> all of the weapons in the world. God. It's like, yeah, yeah. Yeah, this th- it's because she's Ariel, and uh, so we've reached the end of the story where uh, you know Prospera breaks her staff on the rock, and uh, and Miranda and uh, Ferdinand are are reunited and married because they're they're gay and in love, and I think maybe that has a lot to do with it. Yeah, yeah, that sounds about right. Although uh, speaking of Ari and uh, Prospera and Soleta, I knew a lot of people towards the end who were real mad about uh how Suleta uh, basically how Prospera lived because they were they were furious at the idea of Prospera basically not getting her just desserts for basically emotionally abusing and using her child for you know 17 years I get it but also Prospero survives in the Tempest like that's that's I that's what I feel like they were trying to pull from but also I feel like media does not need to like constantly give people like the moral like this is what should happen bad deeds are punished sometimes bad deeds are not punished and that's you know it's bad but that's what happens and that's also it would be so out of character for Suleta because Suleta does not have a vengeful bone in her body she yeah, is absolutely not the kind not. of person who would take revenge on anyone much less the only mother she's ever known. Right, and she wanted the, you know, she's like, oh, I don't want this or that to happen. I want to try to make this better ending happen for everybody. And that is effectively what happens. She got what she wanted. Prospera dying would be very out of character for what Suleta desires. And obviously this is a very fraught and very personal issue for uh, because abuse looks different to a lot of people and a lot of people, you know, people heal in wildly different ways. But I wonder if, um, at least for some people, there is kind of an element of best case scenario wish fulfillment in how Soleta's, uh storyline wraps up because like she retains this twist. It, uh, she, she still loves her mother and wants that connection with her. You know, uh, Prospera talks about Prospera clearly still loves her daughter, even if she also viewed her as a mean to an end, means to an end, and unquestionably what she does is abuse. And so the story ends with, you know, Soleta's partner uh, and fiance stepping in to say, I am setting these boundaries and you can't hurt her anymore. I will stop you if you do. Um, and, you know, Prospera uh, seemingly accepts those bonds uh, th- those boundaries and has the support of her sibling now and is able to kind of tentatively begin rebuilding that relationship on her terms. And I think, you know, not every, you know, there's, there's, I know why people get frustrated because there are a lot of, especially Western media, because it's so influenced by, uh, by societal Christianity about how you need to forgive your abuser and that because that's what's best for you and like uh, fuck that no you you don't necessarily need to do that if uh, that's what not what is healthy for you but I think there is value uh, in being able to say 
there are circumstances where you can be supported and you are not minimized and your suffering is not minimized, but you can salvage that relationship, right? I mean, there's also the fact that that at the last minute, they're also like, oh, and Prospera is not an issue anymore because something, something nanomachine brain cancer. It's the it's that data storm infection, very similar to what Suleta ended up having and that she's healing from. But because Prospera had it for so much longer, um, she's I think she's effectively terminal. I think that's what it is. Certainly the implication. She's certainly paraplegic. And like we could certainly talk about how um, her eyes are shut the entire time. I'm assuming she's also like really starting to fade. Like we we could certainly talk about. physically arresting disability as effectively a punishment for our villain character, but I am not uh, the one who is qualified to do that. I was gonna say, there's at least one other Gundam series I could think of doing that, but that requires getting into deep, deep victory Gundam spoilers, and this is not the place for that. (laughs) (laughs) That's funny. I personally didn't consider this punishment. I actually, like, I, I, I think it was the consequences of her actions, because, I mean, she had been suffering with that very quietly, and that just would have happened anyway, but I still consider this not as like Okochi and, and others pointing at the viewer going, you need to forgive your abusers. Just like this is more like sometimes relationships can be salvaged. And this one just is. There's no moral um, reading that the writers are trying to give the viewer. It at just mo- is. At most, maybe it's, you know, how revenge can destroy someone. Like she was just so committed to, I have to preserve my daughter and kill Delling and do all this so I can preserve Ari forever, that it literally destroyed her. And I I think there is a crucial difference in that Suleta never says, I forgive you, or it's okay that you treated me like this. Like, her line beginning to end is, I still love you, and fuck you for doing this. You can't, you can't still be doing this. Exactly. Exactly. Like, she, she never, like is you know she's never becomes a like a dormant at the very end of it she eventually rises above it despite her being gaslit into oblivion at the start she eventually rises above that and doesn't go back down to be like oh i forgive you hee hee none of that yeah, yeah be her, it. Oh, her, her, her oh, position mm. was always more about like i not even about punishing her mother so much as like i want to save airy i want to save everyone because i i still want this family yep. as weird and broken as it is yeah, sometimes just because you have a dysfunctional family doesn't mean you don't love that dysfunctional family. Like you, People may not have that experience, but in this case, Suleta does. It is what it is. And so much of the, uh, so much, I, I feel like it's it's assisted by the fact that so much of the narrative is spent talking about valid, uh, like validating and supporting Suleta through like, hey, this is gaslighting and child abuse. Hey, this is fucked up. Someone should help this kid. And I, I think Suleta's narrative and relationship with her mother is, from beginning to end, the strongest element of the show. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I do, before we kind of have to wrap up, want to, you know, aside of the screaming about how nice the finale is, I do want to spend some time to shout out just how genuinely wonderful Suleta and Miarine's actual relationship is. It did disappoint me that, functionally, they have to spend a lot of the second half apart because, you know... They're growing as different people, and that's important before they can come back together and reforge their relationship. You know, they have to grow separately before they can grow together. Traditional romance tropes. But they give me feelings, and, and they're supportive, and and I love them. And, the and she holding, took her hand. The intimate hand-holding. Yes. Forever in my brain, rotating like a rotisserie chicken. 
or little and little details like people pointing out like oh they have different colored rings and uh Suletta's matches the colors of Mia Reen's mother's ring that we see in the opening because Mia Reen gave Suletta her mother's wedding ring for her wedding ring oh my god the thing is, I cannot wait for the inevitable, like, whatever that jewelry brand is in Japan to release those two wing- rings, and I cannot wait to buy them. I can't mm-hmm. wait. I've never done that before, and I'm going to buy them. They got me. They got me in a chokehold. I I legitimately choked up twice. First one, you know, uh, Suleta loses the duel, and, and, and she's like, but we were, we're going to, you know, we're going to wear rings, and we're going to wear pretty dresses. But, you know, they yes. didn't get married canonically, except to interpretation. And and then and then when she takes her hand and they talk through the door, yes, oh god, the thing when and, and so when, that helps snap Mirin out of her like PTSD funk. Oh the my wilted god, Apoge that becomes unwilted. Ah. <laughs> oh, it's so good. And I know some people were disappointed that there was no literal kiss, but as we learned uh, afterwards from Yuri on Ice, you know it is very 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 hard for any creator to get that kind of representation on screen it's still yeah, representation I mean, kisses are not required the thing they are married like you yes. don't need to have a wedding ceremony they are married they're wearing rings Ari refers to you know Irene is the sister-in-law i if you feel like you need more than that to confirm it to yourself please get yourself some media literacy thank you i mean much. i mean look like it's a catch 22 right because on the mm-hmm. one hand it should we shouldn't need to you know i i've got i've we been watching this we don't need to dance sh- around it i agree but still like yeah like it's, still it's nice yeah no it's it's by all accounts by all reasonable standards they they you know they're the center of the relationship they talk about getting married they're both clearly attracted to each other they have multiple re- talks about the relationship and how important they are to each other it w- were this you know the old standby were this a man and a woman you would never doubt it for even a second and then they got married and they talk about themselves in these familial terms this should all be fine but it's also because of what happened after this aired you can see why people get anxious and pissy about explicit love confession explicit um you know on-screen kiss because it feels like this constant anxiety of uncertainty uh where it can we can be erased at any time you know it it is we ourselves the audience are being gaslit about our own existence how fucked up is that it's awful I was gonna say, you cannot fool us, Bondi Namco. We saw what we saw, and you cannot take it back. And now you need to give us lots of promo art with Suleta and Mio in wedding dresses. Yeah, some of those character designers are gonna come in and draw some stuff, just like Sushio did. Just watch. But the thing is, like, there's also so much, like, context, not just subtext, just text, throughout the show that you can't just chop it all out. It'll make no sense. And the thing is, like, even a lot of people that I follow on Twitter that are, like, Japanese dudes who build Gunpla that typically do not make commentary on this sort of stuff, they were making commentary on this sort of stuff. I hit translate tweet on a lot of what they were saying. They all saw it, so uh, what they would probably consider, like, conservative older Gundam fans, I honestly think that large group largely may not give a shit. Yeah, like, there will always be shit heels, but I feel like... They are not the majority, always, even of yeah, the You always hope that, that there say. is like this this market that's that's underestimated by conservative media groups, right? Well, yeah, like they I wouldn't necessarily th- seek it out, but like 
when it's put in front of them, they're okay. They deal. Yeah, I don't think Bondi Namco really counted on uh, just how much queer audiences, and particularly those who are newcomers to Gundam, really respond to that show. So they they maybe need to rethink some things. They, if they want to continue retaining that audience for future Gundam shows and for buying future Gundam merchandise. Yeah, I, I doubt that they will comment again. on it further. Yeah, um, they made me buy kits again. They better rethink. Because I, I hadn't built a Gunpla in like four years. It convinced me to build one. Mm-hmm. They can get gay people to build model kits. They can do it. They just have to try. I don't know. I I guess at this point I'm so I'm cynical, but I love to be proven wrong, right? Like it's I hope it, to be proven wrong. It, it's like my heart is still just broken about um in the the Yuri on Ice fan book when Sayo Yamamoto talked about how she really put her foot down to to get the episode seven kiss uh, through even in kind of the obscured state that it was. And we haven't seen her in seven years. Free Sayo. I don't know. I, I really want to vocally applaud animators, writers, uh, artists who are doing their damnedest to get out uh, work against this system that is so clearly stacked against them, even when we don't necessarily see it in front-facing spaces, especially in English language ones, while also, you know, trying to thread that needle of continuing to push for we deserve more. The thing is, gay people and, you know, people who love queer media built Gundam from the very beginning. I mean, people have been drawing Char and Amuro and Char and Garma since, you know, 1979 and 1980. I have old doujins from those years sitting on my shelf right behind me. And I feel like this is Gundam's legacy continuing in, honestly, an even brighter and more obvious form. And I love that. I mean, isn't, is it a Tomino article where he talks about how, uh, Char and women... are meant to be seen as homoerotic. And if he basically said, if you didn't see it that way, you need to watch it again. <laughs> Good old yes, Char's that's... counterattack. I was talking about how women saved the Gundam franchise, not dudes. Yep, that too. That was an NHK documentary. And yeah, that was like what sixty percent of people watching 0079 at the time were women, and like older women. They weren't kids; they were like adults, something like that. But but also, this show has proven it successful. That no longer is it controversial to say, but what if the Gundam boy was a girl? Because you know, right in the middle of airing this season, they announced a brand new uh, one year war spinoff series starring a female character. And as exhausted as I am with stories about. Oh, another ace pilot coming out of nowhere with a super duper special Gundam in the middle of the one year war because that's been done a bazillion times. It's a little bit of progress. We're yeah. getting there. Yeah, like I I really want to believe that that even as hard as it had to struggle and as compromised as the final project ended up being in some ways, that that G Witch has kicked open some doors. I want to believe that in my heart. And I want people to to watch it. Uh, even, you know, now that now that it's over, kind of these criticisms will be out there. And that doesn't mean people shouldn't make them because like it's it's fair, especially when something is digging, um, dealing with issues as weighty as G-Witch is. But I just I hope people continue to find it, even if they didn't get to have the week to week experience of it. I'm excited right. to try to see it like again, but like without the back to back or without the week to week, but instead of the back to back. I wonder if it'll be better in twos, threes, fours, all at once, which would be terrible, but, you know, we'll see. Yeah. 
it is not a perfect Gundam, but it is a good Gundam. It is a very consistent Gundam. It is a very interesting Gundam. And because of that, I think it is genuinely one of the strongest of the AU Gundams in the, the entire franchise. I completely agree. I There is, I, as much as I will dig into it and dig into Okochi as a writer, and it, even though he's improved a lot, honestly, this isn't the, the top three for AU stuff, for sure. Like, not everything, I mean, technically this is an AU, but it can be, but it is and it isn't. Not everything is turn A Gundam, but <laughs> G-Witch is up there, and that is, that made me stop. Like, I was like, whoa, this continues to be, like, pretty good. Like, almost, not that good, but extremely good and extremely enjoyable. There, I wasn't not hooting and hollering and grinning at my screen for every episode of G-Witch for no reason. No, I had so much fun watching this. Yeah, and it's really going to be a landmark. I think it's going to have a similar legacy to the likes of Wing or IBO as far as, like, this is a, a lot of people's first Gundam, and it's some of them, at least, I think, are going to stick around. And uh, Prayer Circle, that because it's on Crunchyroll, it gets a slightly chipper Blu-ray release than most of the Bandai Gundams. It won't, but, like, Prayer Circle. Please. Uh, I'm, I'm pretty sure it'll get a better Blu-ray release. Uh, Bondi tends to be pretty on top of that, or Nozomi, really, which is technically now Crunchyroll, but uh. yeah, I think they would be foolish considering how much they sell those sets for and how people buy them, like how I buy them. Um, I think it'd be foolish for them to not release it. I am not going to pay Japanese prices for the show. Knock on wood. Any last thoughts before we, uh, we wrap this up besides... Um... Gay? Gay. <laughs> gay, gay, homosexual, gay. <laughs> Love these funky little space lesbians. Very into it. All right. Thank you to both of you for taking the time uh, and being our Gundam experts. And thank you at home for joining us. Please, if there are, because this series is so much, even taking an hour, there was definitely stuff we missed. So feel free to chime in in the comments with your own thoughts. You can, uh, if you liked what you heard, you can find us on our website, animefeminist.com. If you really like what you heard, consider tossing us a dollar a month on Patreon or Ko-Fi at Anime Feminist. Uh, those help us pay the bills, and Ko-Fi in particular, coffee, I still don't know, uh, is helping us to raise funds to be able to pay our writers and editors more because inflation keeps on going up and uh you know people need money to live you can also find us on social media we are on tumblr twitter and and mastodon as anime feminist we are on instagram and tiktok as anafem site that wraps us up for this time thank you so much anafem and uh go be gay at someone today i love that for you Bye.